Hello, welcome to Jack and the Box. This is a production of Sojourners Awake in which we discuss all things tabletop and role-playing games. I'm Jonathan. I'm Jackson. How are you doing today, Jackson? Pretty good, you? Good, good. I'm doing better. I Well, I am doing well, but I would do a lot better if we had more dragons, please. Yes. <laughs> so on today's topic, we want to discuss more dragons. And for the premiere of this wonderful Jack and the Box production here, in which we discuss all things tabletop, let's hear from you on some upcoming Dungeons and Dragons news. Take it away. Yes, so far we have a preview of the Drake Warden Ranger. Okay, so what do you got regarding the Drake Warden Ranger? And if I could just say really quickly, it's about time we have a Dragon Guardian. That sounds great. Yes. So we have Drake, the Drake Warden Ranger. Similar to it in... Uh, it's very similar to the Beastmaster. But okay. it's, uh, it varies, and uh, mechanically I think it's, it's a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tasha's did a lot for the for the Beastmaster, but in general, I think in Rangers in general. Uh, but I think this is definitely one of the more on par with some of the stronger classes, while still being balanced. Third level, they get Thaumaturgy. Okay. <laughs> and they automatically can speak, read, write, and Draconic. Or if you already speak Draconic, one of them would be your choice. That makes sense. And you are capable of summoning a Drake companion. In the Unearthed Arcana, you, you, you used to be able to specifically be summoned for hours equal to your proficiency bonus. Uh, now, it's it summoned until you'd, you go unconscious or reach a zero place. Where does this Drake companion come from? Uh, it's left vague. Um, it is dependent on backstory or, or stuff like that uh it, it's up to you i think my personal favorite concept is that if your great companion has some like acolyte background maybe it's their uh, a gift from the dragon gods that they can summon a power okay well that makes me wonder if they're gonna dive deeper into the lore in fizzbangs just regarding like where dragons come from and just rather than being really giant treasure hoarding monsters. <laughs> yeah, they. I don't have it on my notes, but they have mentioned uh, things about dragons that heavily contradict lore previous editions. Oh, which okay. makes me think we're going to have a, like a retcon of dragon lords in, in this book. Okay. Okay, shaking things up. Okay, so moving on up the features of this Drake Warden, what else? What other cool things got you excited? Uh, well... The Drake Companion starts as a small creature, but at 7th level, it grows to medium. Uh, it gains a swimming speed, or flying speed. Okay. And its bite does an extra 1d6 damage of the, Drake, of the Drake's damage type. I could see an entire adventuring party made up of Drake Wardens, and riding or flying or swimming around on their Drake war- on their their Drake companions. Yeah. It could be kind of like a, a mounted theme. The one uh, strange thing is, is they do mention that you can mount your Drake starting at seventh level, even if you it is a medium creature and you are also. 
but no matter your size and its size, it cannot use its flying speed while mounted until fifteenth uh, level, okay. when, in which it grows to large size. Okay, so you're definitely going to want to take this ranger all the way up to twentieth for sure. Yeah, you gain at uh, let's see. You you also gain resistance to your Drake stay with seventh level as well. I notice how they left the uh, stat block a little vague, um, kind of like uh, following that theme with Tasha's, keeping everything based on your proficiency bonus. Yeah. It's, it definitely works with scaling a lot better than the original Beastmaster. Very cool. <laughs> At 11th level, a Drake Warden gains a them and their Drake gain a, both gain a breath weapon. Oh, okay. Exciting. Which you get one free use, uh, but you can also spend third level or higher spell slots to use it. Yeah, so um, one, once you use this feature, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest, unless you expend a spell slot of third level or higher to use it again. Wow. Okay. So you got some options there. That's great. They have. Um, where is that? Uh, it, they're original. Starting out at eleventh level, it does damage comparable to a fireball. Same save, but it does damage in a, in a 30 foot cone equal to your dragon's type. And it, at 15th level, it increases by 2d6 to become 10d6. Okay, so they're definitely bringing out more dragons. And if you want to ride dragons, this sounds like a really great class to play. Uh, yeah. What else is DD celebrating? Uh, coming up in November, we have Strict uh, Saving coming out. Uh, oh, another Magic the Gathering crossover. Okay. Between the setting of Strixhaven, which is very Harry Potter-esque. Okay. Do you have any? You have any details or leaks on that? A handful. We know for a fact that it you can play it in its traditional setting, but they also have rules for converting it to standard uh, definition settings, such as Eberron or Dark Forgotten Realms. Okay, so you can kind of cut and paste and apply it to whatever setting so it's probably got a lot of i'm thinking it's probably going to have a lot of rules regarding how to engage in uh more social interactions yes um, as if you were you know the setting was a school of learning rather than the wild wild world of adventure they have 18 pre-made npc classmates that depending on the adventure uh you may you may interact with and you can even befriend some of them through obviously standard Harry Potter things like sharing classes, but also you can have a job. <laughs> you know, this reminds me a lot of my most recent episode, my most recent campaign called The Bookish and the Brave. It sounds like maybe I jumped the gun a little bit too quickly and uh, started a campaign where my, my players are currently at a library where they're learning. So maybe I should have waited until this book came out to get some ideas. And of course, it will be really interesting to, you know, compare uh, what the book has done and what I've, had, what I've had to do homebrew-wise. We also know with Strixhaven, they have scrapped the Unorthokana sub uh, subclasses they came out with in the favor of Beats. Um, we do know, however, that there will be, there not only will be these Beats for spellcasters, but there will also be uh, speeds that give martial characters such spellcasting as well. We don't have a whole lot of details on what those will look like, 
there will be like each school, which there are five of, each have their own mascot and themes to them. Prismari, uh, as an example, is a school of like art and performance. Their mascot is what's called an art elemental, which looks appearance-wise looks like a water weird covered in like net of fire. Well, that sounds really interesting. Um, it's going to create some team spirit and. I, it's. I think now I'm thinking about running a campaign where the entire setting is the school, and wondering how an adventure would take place in one setting where there's no travel, there's no going back and forth, um, no necessary, no no hidden dungeons necessarily, but the entire conflict of adventure takes place in the school. And you think about it, Harry Potter. Well, it mostly took place in the school. You also have places like Hogsmeade, the Forbidden Forest, that's places that they that they they use or object your own use to progress the plot of Harry Potter. And we're not sure how how that'll carry over to Australians. You know, I think that is going to be a little bit bigger of a hit than Fizzbane's. I'm thinking that a lot of people are going because of the love for Harry Potter and and magic yeah. schools, I and, and teams. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of certain like werewolves and vampire teams <laughs> that I think, uh, yeah, I think, a lot of people are really uh, excited about. I think it would definitely be a good place, a good adventure to get your kids into d &D. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, go straight from school to role-playing school. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah, it's a very familiar setting for everybody. Everyone knows Harry Potter. <laughs> All right, what else do you, or what else are we celebrating regarding d, &D? Uh, well, we got some, in the last panel of Dini's celebration, we got, started off a little slow, but we did, at, towards the end, get a lot of g really good details. Um, starting with what's coming 2022 and 2023, we have, in January, a box set uh, containing Mordekainen Presents Monsters of the Multiverse. It was originally sold in a box set, after a month or two, they'll sell it individually. Um, so that's interesting sales concept. Yeah, <laughs> definitely interesting sales concept. You know, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. I have seen a little bit of the art for the Monsters of the Multiverse, and it seems a lot like Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes reskinned. Give so, me some hope. Give me some hope here, because I'm really looking forward to some new monsters. So the point of this book is it, it most likely won't have anything new. The point of it is it's sort of a compilation of every stat block that's been in 5e for, for a monster will be in this book and a lot of them will have overhauls. Uh, they're going to completely change how monster spellcasting works. Any spellcaster will have new rules regarding that. Um, and it, most spellcasters will have a non-spell magical ability they can use. So if you ever have a, so if you got players who love counterspell, <laughs> here's your <the> chance. <laughs> well, you know, um, it almost seems like maybe they're trying to release a primer for how to do monster manuals differently. Yes. Mm, okay. And okay. in the same book, uh, thirty. Or roughly 30 of the 34 races not in the player's handbook will also be contained in Monsters of the Multiverse, the, more, the book coming out of the set. 
Those are 30 playable races? Yes, uh, compiled from Bolos, Border Cannons, all the already published races that are not in the player's game. Though four will be missing. Okay. Which I'm curious to see which ones they'll leave out. That's, that's, yeah, that's going to be interesting. We might have to talk more about that. I'm not sure I'm excited about this book as much as I am about Strixhaven or Fistbins. But what, what else are we celebrating? What else have we got? Uh, also coming when June 23, we will have uh, three returning classic campaign settings from previous editions. We're not sure what they are so far, but we have we did do a co- uh, book concept art for okay. Okay. an upcoming book cover, which has none other none other than everyone's favorite giant space hamster, Boo. <laughs> All right. So, with that being the teaser, what are the big thoughts out there on what this setting is going to be? It's it's either going to be, in my opinion, it's very it's very likely to be Spelljammer, considering giant space hamster, okay, a miniature giant space hamster. Sorry, which may I mention is just a normal hamster, but from space. Yeah, he looks terrifying. So, okay, I'm, I'm looking for clues here. I see nine circles, almost like a halo above this hamster's head. Yes. Does that mean anything? Nine nine circles? I, I have a personal theory about that. Is if you look, there is... Um, there's nine outer circles and one inner circle above the head. Which, a uh, very similar design to a beholder. Hmm. It, it looks like uh, Boo is covering up the beholder's mouth in this in this image. Which, once again, we've had some beholder things before, but once again, that leads me back to the possibility of Spelljammer, considering uh, beholders and Spelljammer were basically like the huts from Star Wars. Okay, I can, I can kind of like, see that now. It does like look like a beholder. Prime yeah. So, I okay. think it definitely shares design appearances to the uh, Xanathar on the cover of Xanathar uh, Got Everything and also uh, Dragon Heist. Okay, so silly question. Let's see if you know this trivia. How many stalks does a beholder eye? How many stalks does a beholder have? Um, I believe he has nine stalks and one center eye. I believe the center eye is an anti Levitating globe with ten... Ma- okay, so re- <clears throat> there's a quick search. I see ten. I see ten. Hmm. Okay, so a quick search. I see the original Beholder having ten eye stalks and then a large circular eye. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I see nine. Yeah, there's nine it's, here. So that's interesting. I don't know. Interesting. So, well, that's... A lot of speculation. We'll see how that turns out. Okay, so now I want to move on to talking about other RPGs out there. We want to take a little bit of time to explore and research different things about RPGs that we like. I'm going to bring up the RPG 13th Age. It's a D20 system, and I don't really know a lot about it, but one thing that I picked up very quickly that I see is called the Simplified Range Mechanics. I'm going to say why I like this. First of all, in my D&D games, I like using theater of the mind rather than grids. 
I know D&D has been called like a miniature game or you have to have miniatures and grids to play the game. Traditionally, it does seem like it is that kind of game. So if you're not using miniatures or if you're doing um, like online sessions where you don't really have a virtual tabletop, I think this rule system is great for simplifying movement. So there's three terms. There's engaged, which means you are in direct melee combat. There is nearby, which means you are within one move away from an opponent. And then there's far away, which is you are more than one move away from the opponent. The way I would explain this to you as a player, I would say, okay, okay, Jackson, you have a, um, a monster that is nearby. That means you can use your current movement speed, close the gap and make an attack. But if I describe the monster as far away, you have to use your movement speed and then wait until next turn to make an attack. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's that simple. And so it doesn't mean there's a lot of complicated strategy for movement. You kind of get rid of the, uh, oh, I don't have enough movement speed. You either have enough movement or you don't have enough movement to get there, but you're always within one turn to attack. And of course, if you're engaged, what I really like about this is if you are engaged, if I read the instructions right, you can make uh, basically a dexterity save to use your movement to take the dodge act, or use your movement to take the disengage action. So normally like with D&D, yeah, normally with D&D, you take the disengage action or you use your movement speed and provoke an automatic opportunity attack. When this case, yeah, you can use your movement speed. If you make the save, you do not provoke an opportunity attack. All right. That's interesting. Uh, I've seen this concept in a handful of different games. Um, I know the, the the Star Wars tabletop by Fantasy Flight Games also uses a similar concept of range bands. But instead of having three um, bands, they have five, which okay. were melee or, or engaged. Then you had short range, medium range, long range, and artillery range. Yeah. Where melee is... That's obvious. It's melee. Uh, short was things like spears and things like that could be used. Medium range was things like blaster pistols. This is Star Wars. Long is most like rifles and, and things like that. But then artillery range would be like, let's say, like the the cannons on like an Imperial Walker or Starship. Mm-hmm. Those would be considered uh, artillery range. Okay, so I have a question for game masters out there. Uh, Jackson, take the answer on this one. If you're using a simplified range mechanic in which there's really only two options, you're either nearby an enemy or you're far away from an enemy, and one of your characters chose Spell Sniper or some other feat that grants them bonuses with, you know, long-ranged attacks, how would you how would you reward this character for taking that feat while still keeping the movement mechanics ultra simple? Yeah. Uh, I think if we're using the concept of three range bands, engaged, nearby, and far away, uh, when casting a spell, you could choose you could choose retreated as one range band lower for your range. 
Like if you were far away, you could choose for it to count as nearby. Or if okay. you're nearby, you could choose for it to count as melee. Okay, so basically give a couple, give more options for the yeah. spell casting. Yeah, uh, with- you would basically, you could choose uh, if it's which range, which range you would like to be. Yeah, gotcha. Very cool. Very cool. Well, now we're going to talk about the rules lawyer discussion. Uh, this is the part of the show where we just pick out three, maybe two to three simple topics and really take do some hot takes on them. So the three topics today are flanking, wizards, and the use of healing spells, and snacks at the table. Flanking is described, I think, in the Dungeon Master's Guide as optional. Believe it or not, it's optional. So A lot of players don't realize that. Yeah, that's true. A lot of dungeon masters don't realize that either. I, I want you, I want to hear from you. What are the pros and cons? You know, do, should you use flanking and should you not use flanking? Give me good reasons yeah. for both. I think it really depends on your place. It can be a very fun thing to reward like clever thinking, but it can also be a very it can also be like a very abusable mechanic. If like you have power, like I guess not power gamers, but min maxers, mm-hmm. where they're trying to get every possible advantage they can, then that can sometimes be an issue. But I see in most parties, I see it's it's a way to reward uh, clever clever tactics, especially if you have a character who is like a tactician or like a battle master. I could see being. I could see very much thinking like they would know, like you could sometimes tell them, hey, just so you know, you could flank and get an advantage. But if a player uh, isn't very uh, combat adept, like a sorcerer, maybe like, maybe like, I would say like, have it it be a thing, but have like certain players, I would have to instigate the flight. Like a battle master or some like a fighter would have to be there to instigate would have to be one of the people flanking. So that's a good idea is bringing up flanking as an optional ability, but only yeah. for certain classes that would yeah. know how to flank. Like I think the Tasha's variant class features, I would definitely add it to fighters. Uh, barbarians and most wisdom-based martial characters. So something like a moon druid, I could see having that. A ranger, cool. a monk. Mm. I could see. I could. I could see uh, fighters. I think certain rogues I could see using it, but also other ones maybe not. Like something like an investigator rogue or a mastermind rogue. I could see doing that. Yeah, uh, so other it, other types of rogues like the arcane trickster, maybe not. Well, I can see you're really granting uh, happiness to the entire table because, for most players, they may not really think flanking is a good or a bad thing. They just don't care. And then for the player who does really value flanking, you could offer them that flanking feat, yeah. which they could pick up at fourth level and beyond. Would you rather the dungeon master give you advantage for flanking or a plus two for flanking? That's interesting. Um, I personally have been working on, I've been thinking about some variants of flanking. 
I think the one I've, I've settled on the most that I like is y you would act as if you have expertise on the attack. So you add your proficiency bonus twice to the attack roll. Okay, very cool. That's really powerful. <laughs> yeah. But it also scales. So like, at a lower level, it doesn't break the game. But at a higher level, it feels like you've gotten like better at this skill. Well, there you have it, folks. I think that's the gold mine out of this podcast right there is use your expertise bonus for flanking as a feat. That would be a delicious uh, feat for players to pick up. All right, so what about wizards and healing spells? Uh, argue for them, argue against them. I have a specific uh, view on that one particularly. Um, I, I was a really big fan of an old Arcana that was the Thurgist wizard. Who was a wizard who, instead of having traditional uh, wizards um, subclass, he would instead pick a cleric domain and would gain their abilities and place a wizard subclass. So something like the life cleric, and they could add cleric spells to their spell list, to their spell book. I think something like a scribe's wizard, or maybe an, an abjurer wizard. I could see that. But I also think certain wizards, like the bladesinger, or the war wizard may, might not have access to that. So why wouldn't you allow healing spells for wizards at the table? Um, I guess it depends on the actual wizard in question. As if, as you also have to think like, a wizard is a scholar in like the arcane arts, not necessarily healing. And I think if you have a wizard who, spe who specializes in maybe like magical medicine, then I, I, I would say, yeah, totally. I think it's definitely a case by case basis. Well, there's another piece of gold mine from this podcast. Create the wizard subclass, uh, the study of healing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I have never really asked you this before. We have played together in person plenty of times. What do you think about snacks at the table? Yes or no? Yes, on certain conditions. <laughs> it depends on the snack. <laughs> uh, not necessarily. Uh, I think <laughs> drinks at the table are fine. Okay. But wait to eat like like messy, crunchy, like food snacks. Yeah. Like in, in another group I'm in, we take a break halfway through. Yeah. Like about a 15 minute break to eat snacks, use the bathroom, all that stuff. But we we typically drink like soda or water at the table or whatever. Right, right. I, that, I think that's a good compromise um, because I think. So something about Dungeons and Dragons, um, it really any tabletop role-playing game you play, I have noticed the benefit of it is primarily social. It's a time where we are gathered around the table, we're all looking at each other, we're engaging, and one of the quickest ways to bond with each other is to eat while doing so. I think that's why a lot of business deals are cut while having a drink, while having a meal together. Um, a lot of times interviews will take place over a meal. Um, I mean, even going out on a date, getting to know someone, most one of the most common things to do is to go out to dinner, even if it's just a simple coffee to share with someone. There, uh, there is a very, there is a, a very good reason as to why the you all start in a tavern is very popular. Even right there, exactly. Yeah, you beginning in a tavern <clears throat> is classic because 
food really brings us together. So I, I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, even taking like light snacks or especially drinking, you know, yeah. we're, we're socializing and participating. It only then strengthens the bond that we have um, around the table. So yeah, I agree with that. That's great. Well, this is the final segment of our wonderful show, Jack and the Box. Beginner's advice to the dreamer dungeon master, here is our message to you. Take it away, Jack. Well, when I first started being, I was, I, I was very insecure about my DMing skills. Um, Jonathan here actually taught me some really good tips. I took a bit of a like a class with him, but I I will say, the one thing. No, two, I have two main pieces of advice. If you're running from a book, which I recommend, don't be afraid to stray from what's written and more use it as a guide. When I ran my first one shot, uh, it was something off the DM skill. I forget the name of it, but it was this, it had like an overall structure, but when, when my players inevitably uh, got distracted, I was able, it, I was able to bring them back to the quest by giving them, I gave them a time frame in which they could go ham in game. Like they had two hours of free time, like in between when they had to meet someone. So I said, go ham, what do you want to do? And that that helped a lot with, they <laughs> let players get some those hijinks out that mm -hmm. a lot of players yeah. will. Yeah, it, it didn't. It helped not distract from the overall story. They were able to get some some things done that they needed to in game, with the quest. But they they also were able to progress it other ways. Like, I remember my mom's character um, ended up sneaking into like the town's like council uh, room invisibly when they were doing their council and managed to steal um, one of the council members' wand, like magic wands. <laughs> and there was a whole hijink there, but overall, it ended up helping them with the story later because I, d I decided that wand was actually stolen from a later NPC. Mm. And that, 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 was it. I, that was a way of them to tie them back to the story. And what would be your second piece of advice? My second piece of advice is read the book. <laughs> like, I know it seems obvious, but like, mm. get like a quick read over, like once over the book. At least But once. then go chapter by chapter each session. You reread the chapter you're on. So that way you have fresh in mind what, do, what is actually going on and what is going on overall in the story. So I know what not to let the players do. Yeah. And my piece of advice is a lot of what you were saying. I love to say to game masters and dungeon masters like connect the dots from the player actions to the overall story. You know, the example you gave Jackson, you had a general storyline and of course some players decided this is how they were going to progress that story, break into the council, sneak in, steal the wand. And then you, you mentioned that key phrase, I decided where that wand belonged. And you connected the player's actions to the story. 
And I think I think that's one of the best pieces of, pieces of advice I have. As a dungeon master, it's really not our job to say how or even why the players are going on the adventure. It's just our job to set up the what, the who, the where, the wins, and then let the players decide the hows and the whys of the story. And, and so when a player decides, here's how I go about this mission, I sneak into the council invisibly and I steal a wand, well, then it's the dungeon master's job to connect that important action and choice the player made to the overall story. So this has been Jack and the Box, a production of Sojourners Awake, designed to discuss all things tabletop and role-playing games, especially discussing exciting news in the Dungeons & Dragons world. If you enjoyed this background music and ambiance, you should visit Tabletop Audio. You can check them out at www.tabletopaudio.com. If you're interested in reading inspiring articles for Dungeon Masters and players alike, you should visit Sojourners Awake at www.sojournersawake.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening to Jack in the Box. Be sure to share with your friends and family. And as always, Sojourner, may your story continue.